0: So the men's retreat was great. If you were there, if you weren't, it wasn't great because you weren't there. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Hey, uh, Tom uh, wasn't paying attention because I was not sitting doing nothing. I led the games. The games were great, right, guys? All right. And I did the PowerPoint. So there, I'm multi-talented. And... uh, but, we'll, but the great thing was six guys from this body spoke to us, and each one uh, had something that I took away, and it was just, it was just amazing, the, the blessing that we have in, in this church of, of men and, and women who, who can lead and, and uh, share their heart and bless us. Last week, we overviewed the Gospel of, of Matthew. This week, we're going to focus on just a small section chapters, Matthew 5-7, through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have Bibles, you might want to get them out and you might want to use them because we'll be jumping a little bit in that, in, mainly in that section. Uh, Pastor Charles Simeon, old guy, said, There is no portion of the Holy Scripture from which mankind at large expresses so great a reverence as that which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi, who rejected much of the teachings of the Bible, uh, he was negotiating with the British government and he said, when your country Britain and mine India shall together gather together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only for our countries, but for those of the whole world. Even unbelievers are awed and inspired by this sermon and when it was first preached, and, uh, we read in Matthew seven twenty-eight at the end of the sermon, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is probably, the Sermon on the Mount is probably even just a summary of Jesus' teachings. It's what Matthew picked out and put in there as three chapters. Jesus probably taught a number of other things. Jesus' teachings were authoritative. They were astonishing. Someone has said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon of all time delivered by the greatest preacher of all time. And so today, in what will be a much lesser sermon by an infinitely less adequate preacher, I want us to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And to do that, we must first understand its context. What's going on around it? Where is it? What's happening? We get uh, the immediate context in the first two verses of chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up the side of this unidentified mountain, there's speculation what it is, we don't need to go into that. His disciples follow him, and Jesus teaches them. He's actually teaching his disciples, but the crowd is listening in. This is a good pattern for any sermon, right? It's the pattern I try to follow, preaching to the disciples, the believers, the church, but always having in mind that the crowd, the non-believer, the seeker is listening in. So that's the immediate context. Jesus is teaching his disciples, crowd listening in. But we also need to consider the sermon's sort of overall context in the Gospel of Matthew? What's, what's being accomplished? Why does Matthew put it here? And when I say Matthew, I mean Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit. So why does God put this here? We can't just view the Sermon on the Mount, which so many people do. They not only view the Sermon on the Mount, but one verse in the Sermon on the Mount as some isolated teaching. It has a, a bigger context. Now last week we saw that Matthew's purpose, his Gospel, was to show what? Pop quiz, anyone? What was the purpose of Matthews? What's he trying to do? Show that Jesus is the long-awaited king and his audience is the Jews, and so he uses the Old Testament a lot to do that, right? So he quotes a lot from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is the long-awaited king. And in chapter 4, verse 23... Right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew sort of summarizes Jesus' earthly ministry. Not up to this point, but sort of a summary of his his whole ministry. Matthew four twenty-three. And he went throughout he, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Then again in chapter nine, verse thirty-five, shortly after the Sermon on the Mount, We see basically the same summary again. Matthew's saying the same thing again. There's a a point to that. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is a different place. And healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew says that Jesus' ministry involved teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and then healing the sick, the afflicted, the diseases, showing the power of the kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in word and in deed. In fact, Jesus uses the the, the word kingdom eight times in this sermon. Kingdom of heaven six, kingdom of God once, sort of interchangeable, and then just kingdom once. He begins with these words. The first beatitude. We call the, the first, the beginning part, the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is really to me the gateway into the sermon. This is how you get into the sermon. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their own sinful nature, their own spiritual need, their own, they recognize their need for God, that they can't save themselves. It's those who in humility, who trust in God for their salvation, it's those will, who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then near the end of the sermon, Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom cannot be entered in with mere words. It's not a magic prayer. We pray, we must do the will of the Father. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about that. Well, what do you mean by that? That's not the point right now. We won't go there. But the context of the sermon, from beginning to end, is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of heaven. So, so what is the kingdom? What's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? Well, put simply, it's where God, where Jesus, is king. Okay? That's his kingdom, where he's king. Now, God is sovereign over everything, everything, everyone. And in that respect, he's king Overall, sovereign over all. But the kingdom of heaven, the context, when you read through scripture, it's clear, refers to where God, where Jesus rule and reign is accepted. It's welcomed, it's invited, where people willingly submit to the King. Now that can certainly that certainly can include, does include heaven itself, the heavenly realms, but it also includes the hearts and the lives of some people. On earth, people who willingly submit to Jesus Christ as their king. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of ways you enter into the kingdom, but instead a description of life within the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And don't let the word heaven, it is here on earth, cause you to think that you enter the kingdom of heaven upon your death. You enter the kingdom of heaven when you enter into relationship with the king, Jesus Christ. Heaven is uh, a place that we don't know a ton about. We know some. But the ultimate uh, purpose of heaven is to be with Jesus. And so when you come to Christ in this world, you're in heaven, in a sense. You're with Jesus. If you trusted him, his death on the cross, pay for your sins. If you have submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life, if he's your king... We'll say, if you're a Christian, then this sermon is describing what your life should be like. And if you're not a Christian, if you're part of the crowd, then this sermon is meant to entice you into the kingdom. To show you both the beauty of the kingdom and the futility of not being in the kingdom. So no matter who you are, this sermon is for you. Now Jesus introduces his message with the Beatitudes. These are the blessings, the joy, the happiness, the beauty of life in the kingdom. Jesus says that even, a uh, final beatitude down there, even persecution for righteousness' sake is a blessing. He then gives two uh, really powerful metaphors for representing the kingdom in the world. Those who have inherited uh, the kingdom are now to be what he calls salt and light. Maybe you've heard that before. Seeking in God's power to draw others into the kingdom. Last night at the men's retreat, Mark Easter was our final speaker, and he did a great job talking about these metaphors of salt and light and what that means for us, so I don't feel too bad that I'm going to move on. Move right past him. To what I believe is uh, the key to this sermon. Right after Jesus tells us that we're to be salt and light, and by we, I mean those who are in the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 19, he talks about the importance he talks about the importance of the law in the kingdom, and how he's fulfilled the law and the prophets, really, how all of the law and the prophets, how what we've seen in the Old Testament for 39 weeks, all points to Jesus. It would all be fulfilled by Jesus. And then in verse 20 of chapter five, we read what I believe is the key to understanding the rest of the sermon. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds more than, greater than, higher than, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Now that statement would have, uh, if you're a Jew in that day, you would have went, whoa! What did, what, what, what did he just say? It would have stopped them in dead in their tracks. They would have felt, Jesus, uh, you just said it's not. It's impossible for any regular guy to make it to heaven, to enter the kingdom of heaven, because the Pharisees were all about righteousness, keeping the law. They had identified, they had went through and identified 613 different Old Testament commandments, and they saw it. That was their purpose, to keep those commandments. Plus, they had Invented, written extra laws. They called it a fence. They the fenced around the, the, the 613 laws just so you can't do this, so in case it might make you do this. Extra laws. So in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were uh, the society's paragons of virtue. Parents wanted their children to be righteous like the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, if our righteousness isn't greater than theirs then we'll never enter the kingdom. So does Jesus mean uh, that if the Pharisees as a whole, you know, maybe the average score of the Pharisees on the righteousness scale is 94, then we better score a 95 or we're not getting in. Is Is that what he means? I don't think so. The Bible is clear That we don't get into the kingdom based on our own righteousness. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who know their own unrighteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus mean? Well, I think we get a clue if we go uh, to Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Jesus is speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, if you read the New Testament, especially Matthew, you've heard this before, these kind of things. This is just one example of Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, woe, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. In other words, Jesus is not concerned with the outside external righteousness. Righteousness is not an outwardly being obeying the law. We need to get this if we don't write this down. Righteousness is not outwardly obeying the law, any set of rules. You can be outwardly very totally religious, but it's the inside that must be clean. Jesus further says in verse 28, if I haven't been clear with you guys, so you also outwardly appear righteous, appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees had this outward appearance of righteousness. And Jesus says, that's not righteousness at all. That is not what I think righteousness is. That's not what God calls righteousness. It's hypocrisy. It's lawlessness. So there's good news and there's bad news, right? Brothers and sisters, the good news is, Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees, righteousness scores a big zero. They're terrible at this righteousness thing in Jesus' eyes. So exceeding their righteousness and entering the kingdom of heaven should be a piece of cake, right? Right? Wrong. There's the bad news. Because we're no better than they are. Our righteousness score is also a big zero for all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are selfish and sinful and hypocr- hypocritical. No, that's not the right word. Practice hypocrisy. We're all tied. We're all tied uh, on the righteousness score with a big zero. And I hate ties. I, I don't understand them. We have to have a winner. So how do we exceed their righteousness? How do we move from an outward appearance of righteousness to an inward reality of righteousness? Because Jesus is saying, get this, if you're going to enter my kingdom, then you must be internally clean. And this cleansing the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches, doesn't come through anything that we can do or produce ourselves. We need, as Jesus said to another Pharisee in another gospel, Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring us new life, a new heart, a new birth, to transform us. We are, uh, Paul says, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And in this new birth, Jesus cleanses, he changes, he transforms us uh, transforms us from the inside out. If the inside's clean, the outside is clean. In some ways, it doesn't matter if you roll around in the dirt. If, if the inside is clean, the outside is clean. And in this new birth, in this transformation that Jesus performs, we are given his righteousness that always exceeds the righteousness of of the Pharisees. And that's the key. That's the key to understanding the rest of this sermon. As Jesus describes what it looks like uh, to be righteous, he's going to talk about, in this sermon, he's going to talk about anger, and lust, and love, and hate, and oaths, and divorce, and prayer, and fasting, and money, and giving, and judging, and more. And what we need to see is this. He's not talking about Uh, some righteous state that you must attain so you can enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about those who are already in the kingdom of heaven, who've been transformed and have received his righteousness. He's saying, this is what your life should be looking like, should be approaching, should be moving towards, because I made you righteous. I've given you the power to live a, a righteous life in me. God's Word says that in Christ you're a new creation with a new heart. You've received His Spirit. You've been given a new spirit. Therefore, there will be change. There will be a move towards righteousness. Now, because we uh, still live in this kingdom as well, that change is often gradual. It's often slow. There are often setbacks. But according to Christ, it's inevitable. For those that he's chosen, for those that he's drawn to himself, for those that are in his kingdom, the change will be taking place. So that brings us to the content of the sermon. Really, from Matthew 5.21, after uh, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, to chapter 7, verse 12, we have a picture, really a picture of and a call to Live in such a way that your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what it looks like to be born again, born into the kingdom of heaven. So, first, we are to pursue a superior righteousness. Okay? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 548 you're looking in your Bible, if you have headings, there are six sections about six different topics, six examples. And these aren't, just so you know, these are examples. These aren't exhaustive. Jesus could talk about every area of life. These six he uses. Jesus introduces each topic with something like, uh, words like this, you have heard it said, followed by something that the Pharisees taught, Nothing, uh, not something bad, but something that uh, can merely be external, that can merely be an outward appearance of righteousness. Then Jesus says, after he says, you have heard it said, he says, but I say to you, followed by a a superior, I'm calling it superior because it starts with an S, greater, higher, uh, internal way to pursue righteousness. Now for time's sake, I'm going to highlight three of these six, the three simplest At this point, first, Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. For the Pharisees, as long as you didn't murder uh, someone, you're righteous in this particular area. But Jesus takes it from the outward action. I didn't kill anybody to the emotions, to the heart, implying that the, uh, the people of his kingdom are not to be angry with one another. He then, uh, if you continue in that section, not going to read it, but he, he warns about the importance of maintaining good relationships with one another. Righteousness involves more than not killing people. Okay? Do we got that? It means having good, positive relationships with one another. Second example, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that's superior. For the Pharisees, as long as you didn't sleep with another man's wife, you were righteous. But Jesus gives a superior, a higher standard of righteousness involving your heart's desires, what you're longing for, what happens when you see things. He calls the people of His kingdom to remain internally pure and not look at a woman lustfully. Third example, verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Did I read that right? Love your enemies. I mean, we've heard it so many times. If you've been in church, have you ever thought about it? For the Pharisees, you could love your neighbor, those who were like you, those who you kind of liked, those were your same ethnicity, same socioeconomic background, your kind of people, and hate your enemy. Those who weren't like you, those who uh, you felt were against you, and you're righteous. But Jesus uh, turns its on. you know, I don't know where this comes from, but he shoots for the moon on this one. He says, you're to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He follows this up in verse 45 by saying, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. It's it's through his pursuit of superior righteousness that we demonstrate that we are sons of God, that we've entered his kingdom. All three examples we saw, the Pharisees are focused on the outward acts of righteousness. And if righteousness involves uh, just doing outward acts, just not committing any of these 613 laws and the fence around it, you got a group of guys and you're, you're helping each other not do that, the Pharisee group, then it's possible to create this image of righteousness. Man, those guys are cool. They don't do anything wrong. But Jesus blows them out of the water and says that righteousness is so much more than that. It's beyond that. It's different than that. And the thing we need to see is that unlike the Pharisees... Uh, Jesus' superior call to righteousness is impossible for us to pursue in our own power. I have no ability to control my anger, my lust, my love, my hate. These are emotional responses that flow from who I am, from inside me. So uh, I did something really stupid recently. I went to change my oil, well, my wife's oil, it's her car, in, in her new uh, minivan. You know, we have no kids at home, and we have a minivan. That doesn't make any sense to me, but uh, talk to her about that. Okay, so I went to change the oil for the first time. I get under, I, I go for the, man, that looks different. Oh, this is a new car. Uh, I must, uh, the, the plug is not, it's like a round thing with an Allen wrench. And so I go, uh, okay. So I go find an Allen wrench, I unscrew the plug, and this stuff starts coming out of the car that just, it's coming a little slower, and it doesn't look like oil. It's a little redder. And so I go, what's that? And then I look over the other side of the car, oh, there's the oil pan. (laughs) What did I just do? And so I start feeling like, oh, you idiot. What did you do? And i get getting angry at myself. And I go, oh, it's no big deal. Put the plug back in, go to the O'Reilly's there, auto parts, buy some new transmission fluid, make sure I get the right kind. Come back, open my hood, and uh, this, is gonna, this story is getting too long. Okay, i open my hood. Bottom line, no. there's no way to put transmission fluid in this stupid 2016 car. You know, you can't do it yourself. You have to have a machine, and they have to do it from under, and it's ridiculous, okay? I'm just... So, uh, roadside service, tow car to dealer... Dealer puts uh, transmission fluid back in my car. $236 later. None none of that has anything to do with what I'm talking about. I just said, that's all the setup. And so now I'm I'm done, finally. Two and a half hours just sitting there because I brought my phone because I could read emails and do stuff, and then my phone battery dies, so that's not helpful. So I'm sitting there, and uh, he calls me, the old loudspeaker, come, your car's ready. So I go, the guy gives me this little piece of paper. Uh, this little laminated thing, and says, they'll bring your car out there. So I go out, and there's some people standing, like, up against this rail. And I walk around. I think my thought is this. They know I'm sitting here. They're going to bring my car, and I'm going to hand them this laminated thing, and they are going to uh, give me my car. So I, I sit down, and I'm just sitting there, and then somebody comes up, and he says, my car's not there. He says, can I see your, can I get your thing? And I go, "Sure," not thinking. And some guy standing here goes, "Isn't there a line here?" And, I, and and the guy the guy working there goes, "Well, sorta." He goes, "Well, why didn't he get in it?" I mean, he is freaking angry. And I'm go, and he's a, you know, he's a young guy and he's got a kid with him, a little kid. And I'm going, "Oh, what's going on here?" And I and I said, "You know, I am totally sorry. I did not know the word. Well, you should have figured it out." Oh my gosh. You know, myself, the anger is roaring up, and I'm, you know, he's certainly fitter than me, who isn't, but I'm bigger than him, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, uh, this is not gonna go well, Lord. And so, and so, uh, so there was my sin nature right there, and finally I just said, oh, I gotta let this go. You know, I can't, I can't do this. Uh, and so I had no control over the hate, And anger that welled up within me. And then I prayed, Lord, help me with this. And I saw his kid and that helped. I can't, you know, I can't confront a guy and his kid. And man, and I just started feeling sorry for this kid and this guy and what his life is like if he's gonna do this kind of stuff. Like, oh my gosh. Because I said I didn't know. And he said, You should have figured it out. So anyway, the point of all of that is I had no control over that anger. I mean, because it came. And so to pursue this superior righteousness. Who I am must be changed by God himself. And I'll tell you, if if God hadn't changed me, at least some to this point, that would have went differently, okay? Because it has in the past. I've, in my younger days, hit people, you know, uh, for doing stuff similar to that. It's usually, I'm the, it's not, I don't, I didn't like, wasn't a bully. I hit people who were being bullies, okay? So I'm righteous, you see <laughs> what I'm saying? But I would just hit them. Jesus wants us to see that it's only by trusting him. I'm talking about high school, by the way. I'm not talking about last week. Okay. Uh, uh, Jesus wants us to see that it's only by trusting him to work in and through our lives that we can ever hope, ever hope to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's an internal transformation. He then continues the sermon. We're to pursue a superior righteousness. And second, uh, to practice secret righteousness. Matthew 6.1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Side note, uh, it is okay to pursue rewards from your Father in heaven. The problem is we pursue rewards other places. Okay, moving on. Jesus then in Matthew 6.2-17 gives three examples of how to not be like the Pharisees who practice their righteousness before people. His examples involve giving, praying, and fasting. And each of the examples say basically uh, the same thing. I mean, they have nuance, but they're saying at the heart the same thing. Let's look at just one of the examples, the first one, giving. Jesus says, Verse 2, I think, 6-2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus is saying here is here and in the other two examples that we're not going to read. Uh, when the Pharisees give, when the Sarah Pharisees pray, and when the, Sarah, uh, the Pharisees fast, they do it to be praised by people, to be seen by men. But we ought to be different. We ought to give in secret. And he uses that word secret in each, in each case. Each example, praying, fasting, giving. And just to be clear, the secret giving isn't like, oh, I've got to hide this from everybody, make sure nobody knows I'm giving. Oh, is anybody looking? I'm not going to the box in the back until nobody's looking. Oh, I'm, I'm fasting, but I have to, you know, not tell anybody. Want to have lunch today? No, I can't, but I can't tell you why. Uh, you know, that's not what it's all about. The question is, what is your motivation in doing these things? Who, who do you want to receive your reward from? Whose opinion, whose love, whose acceptance do you want? God's or man's? That's really the test of whether you're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven or not. Uh, for If you live your life to be seen and applauded and rewarded by men, then it's clear that you are not in the kingdom of God. But if God, through Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has entered your life, transformed your heart, then your desire will be to please Him, to receive rewards from Him, to have his, Him rejoice over you. We talked about it at the men's retreat. Uh, one of the questions, I can't remember the context, was what would you like to see on your headstone, your epitaph, right? And I said, well well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. That's what I want to see on my headstone. I want God to look down. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. I want, after this sermon, everyone to say, good job, pastor, and stuff like that too, uh, because I am just Sinful me. But really, ultimately, I want to be rewarded by God. Well done, good and faithful servant. So in the kingdom of heaven, we practice uh, secret righteousness. We seek applause, acceptance, reward from God, not man. We don't care if people see us. We're not doing it for that. We're doing it because God wants us to, because God's called us to. And Jesus continues. "In In the kingdom, we prioritize seeking his righteousness. Matthew 6. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 19-34, to Jesus encourages, commands His people to seek the things of God over the things of this world. Don't store up uh, treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. No man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. God takes care of the birds and and the flowers. He'll take care of you. Just summarizing some of that. And then in verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and our Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Life in God's kingdom means we're not seeking the things of this world, we're not driven or consumed by houses and cars and careers and clothes and all the things that this world has to offer. It's not what motivates us. It's not what inspires us. It's not what uh, causes us to make a decision. If you're making a decision to take a new job just because you get more money, you might want to rethink that. You might want to talk to God about that. Instead, we're excited by the things of God, by His kingdom, seeing His kingdom grow, seeing people come to Jesus, entering His kingdom, people entering His kingdom that they too may worship the King, adore the King. And then seeking His righteousness, following Him, obeying Him, trusting Him, giving Him your, your very lives, allowing Him to spend your life uh, the way He would see it spent for His glorious kingdom purposes. Now, is this easy? No. There's this battle. You know, it's, it's kind of like we're torn, we're in the kingdom but then the other kingdom is grabbing at us, the kingdom of this world. There's a battle for our soul that continues on because even when we enter the kingdom of heaven, we're still surrounded and influenced by the the kingdom of this world. But Jesus is saying, for those in the kingdom, there will be a different set of priorities. You're going to look different from the people around you. And if you don't, fill in the blank. Are you in the kingdom? When God gives us a new heart, He also gives us a new set of priorities for Him and His kingdom. He changes our desires. If you're desiring the same thing the people in the world are desiring, why? So in the kingdom of heaven, we prioritize seeking not the things of this world, but the things of God, His righteousness. Chapter 7, Jesus tells His people to Prevent self-righteousness, final part of the content. In Matthew 7, 1-5, through 5, Jesus says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye. There's a, a log. This is comical if you think about it. When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take, the, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's a lot we could say about this passage, but what I want us to see is that there's no self-righteousness in the kingdom of heaven, but instead by the grace of God, when he changes our hearts, we seek first to grow in our own Righteousness. We look to us first, not to be self-righteousness, but first to see and remove the, the log, the sin in my own eye. And then, and then help our brother remove the, the speck, the sin in our brother's eye. Many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, quote this phrase. That's all they know about the whole Sermon on the Mount, maybe. Judge not lest you be judged. My niece uh, says oftentimes, don't be judgy, you know, she doesn't even know she's quoting the Bible. You know, don't be judgy. And usually, I'm not talking about my niece. Well, maybe I am. Usually, when we say that, it's an attempt to keep, uh, keep people from pointing out your sin. But just to be clear, Jesus is not com- condemning judgment in and of itself. We're to help our brother. We're to see our. Bro- uh, there's other scriptures that say when you see your brother in sin, lift him up, help him out, encourage him. We're to see our brother get the speck out of his own eye, help him. What Jesus is condemning is self-righteous attitude that says, he's the sinner because he doesn't give like me. Or she's the sinner because she dresses like that. He's the sinner because he got really mad when he didn't know that I didn't know I was in line. Jesus is condemning that kind of judgment. The kind of judgment that never looks here first. Jonathan Edwards, regarded as, uh, by many, America's greatest preacher, pastor, theologian, he wrote, this is amazing, I'm I'm reading one of his biographies now, and it's basically about the 70 resolutions. Don't put up the quote before I get... Sorry. Well, I didn't say the quote. Come on, Mom. No, just kidding. Uh, Because they're reading the quote. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, I'm reading this book, 70 Resolutions... And it's amazing. And so uh, his 70 resolutions that he made, resolutions to help him with God's grace. You know, it's not like I'm going to make myself righteous. With God's grace to live a righteous life. And the eighth resolution clearly demonstrates his desire to prevent self-righteousness. Because if you're Jonathan Edwards, you could be self-righteous. He says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. Whether I do or don't, I'm just going to regard I've committed all of that. Edwards' resolution to act and speak as if nobody had been as vile, as sinful as he, is really good advice to all of us. Because we all, remember, score a big fat zero on the righteousness scale, no matter who you are. Always looking to self With regards to our sin first, never pointing the finger of accusation to others, but only seeking to help our brother, our sister, in their walk with God. And that may be confrontational, it may be pointed out, it may not even always go well, but you have to know you're looking to self first. You have to know your motives are to help them, not to uh, show that you're righteouser than them. So that's a summary, okay? The content, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls those who've been born into the kingdom, born again into his kingdom, those who've received his righteousness, he calls them, he calls us to live a new life. A life based on who we are in Christ, on what we've received from Christ, to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, to pursue a superior righteousness, practice secret righteousness, prioritize seeking his righteousness, preventing self-righteousness, then in chapter 6, 7, verse okay, 6 through 12, Jesus makes some concluding remarks about asking and seeking and knocking. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. And those are great. I wish we could talk about those. Then he summarizes, I think he summarizes his own sermon uh, in Matthew seven twelve. We call this the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus says that the golden rule, loving and caring for others, and just so we know, it's internal that I actually feel love and care. I feel the same love and care that I want people to feel for me. Loving and caring for others as you would like to be loved and cared for yourself is really at the heart of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, This really summarizes what it looks like to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven, and we could never, ever do it on our own. We're so selfish. We're naturally, that's just who we are. The only way we can uh, obey the golden rule, really, internally, is by being transformed by Christ. And then, like all good preachers, Jesus ends by calling for a response. Conclusion of the sermon. Jesus has described life in the kingdom, life with Jesus as your king. And then he says, uh, disciples, crowd, there are only two options here. There are always only two options, by the way. And he then gives three different pictures to illustrate the two options. He says, first of all, there are two gates. Matthew seven thirteen. enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Every one of us will enter one gate or another, or the other. You'll enter the narrow gate by faith in Christ, leading to eternal life in His kingdom, or you'll enter the wide gate that leads to destruction and eternal damnation. Two gates. Choose. Similarly, there are two trees, Jesus says. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree... Bears bad fruit. Every one of us is either a healthy tree or a diseased tree, bearing God, by God's grace and power good fruit, or by our fallen nature, our flesh, sinful fruit. And Jesus says about the diseased tree every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Two gates, two trees, you choose. And the last two houses. Jesus said, every, Everyone then who hears, These words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall, was the fall of it. Notice Jesus says about the house built on the sand, and great was the fall of it. That word great in the Greek is megas. Mega, humongous, absolute, epic fall. Jesus is is talking about a far worse storm than... Sometimes we talk about this verse in terms of the storms of this life. You know, uh, death and divorce and, and loss of relationship and things like that. And maybe there's application there. But what he's really talking about... He's talking about about that storm of standing before a holy, righteous God in 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 the last judgment. And the question will come, did your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And the answer will depend on which gate you entered, which tree you are, where you built your house. Where did you put your faith, your trust, your belief? Was it in the wide gate? The diseased tree, the sand of this world, pursuing external righteousness, practicing public righteousness to be seen by men, seeking the things of this world over the things of God, trusting in your own self-righteousness? Or did you go through that narrow gate? Are you the healthy tree bearing good fruit? Did you build your house, uh, put your trust in the word and the life and the death of the solid rock of Jesus Christ? So, today, before the, the gate closes, before the tree gets cut down, before the storm comes, each one of us, I mean, we can move our house. Isn't that cool? It could be built on the sand today, but we can get, call a crew of Jesus people and move it or something. Move it over to the rock. Each one of us must grapple with the choice that Jesus offers two gates, two trees, two houses. All pointing to the, to the same choice. Will I choose my way? So this is, a, this is a just twofold here. Let me just stop. Uh, this is maybe your first time, if you've heard this, and choosing Jesus your first time or not. Or this could be, how do I live my life? Do I live my life by choosing my way, my own wisdom, my own righteousness? Or will I choose Christ's way? On a daily basis, christ Christ wisdom, Christ-word, Christ-righteousness. Will I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and my King, entering His kingdom, being transformed by the power, by His power, uh, for kingdom living. That's really uh, Matthew, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's kingdom living, receiving eternal life in His presence. I pray that each of us in this room today will make the right choice. Not only the first time, but on a daily basis. To allow Jesus to be our King. To enter the Kingdom of Heaven. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You for Your Word and just how powerful it is. How, how great Your Sermon on the Mount is, Lord. I, I just pray that the things from Your sermon would, would be burnt into our hearts. The things that I said that were foolishness would be cast aside. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray we would continue. Lord, uh, there's only one one time of salvation. Lord, uh, I pray for those that have yet to come to know you that they would choose that narrow gate to go through. That they would build their house upon the rock. That they would be that healthy tree, Lord. But but for us who've done that, Lord, I pray that day in our daily practice, Lord, we would seek you first, seek your kingdom, live. Uh, Live as if we've chosen the narrow gate. Not return and live like the world, Father. Just be with us. Give us that power and strength. We can't do it on our own. Change us. Transform us internally in Christ's name. Amen.